Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And this is The Ready State. You got it! You better stop it! Hey guys, Kelly and I wanted to get an expert take on the current state of genetics research and science, given the growing number of DNA testing products and marketing around them. So we invited one of our favorite physicians, Dr. Richard Lee, over for a conversation. He's a family practice physician at Stanford. What's interesting right now is that there are a lot of information coming out of the genetic realm. Like we have this brand new, it's a nascent technology, understanding your own personal genomics. You, you know, I mean, it's it's incredible, right? Yeah, you can get tons of information. I mean, companies like Habit, we got 23andMe, we can really peel back and understand sort of this nurture-nature, you know, dialogue. But what do I do with that information besides find out where right, my ancestors really, are from? You can get all this information, but there's no one out there to interpret it. What's What was amazing about the first time we met with Dr. Lee when he was, had his first company called GeneSolve, it's one of the first times we'd seen a physician do a big subjective interview, do a genetic test and a blood panel and really integrate those things where we could actually take hard steps that impacted our quality of life and performance. Right. He took all this information and gave us actionable things to do that really changed our health. This was, uh, you know, we, are, we have become big fans of actionable genetics and nutrigenomics, and this was the entree in. We're excited to bring this conversation to you guys. Here we are, modern people confronted with what looks like space age technology that we suddenly can, there's 23andMe, you know, I can, I can get all these athletic genes, you know, there's gene therapy, gene doping. I think there's a lot of confusion about what genetics is around, around actionable data, actionable, like what, what are the behavioral tweaks and how does a, a coach or a physician actually use genetics and, and what is genomics? Can you clear that, clean that up for us? Okay, first of all, genetics was the first term and basically describes the, the science of DNA and the study of that. Genomics is a little more focused in studying the areas of the DNA that are actually actionable or that are known to, to make a difference in people's health, to predict health, or to maybe give them some information they can use, hopefully to their advantage. We're still hoping. Is that, I mean, is that happening now yet? I think it is, but it's not to the level that I think people, it's, it's not at the space age level at this point. There's a huge amount of data and information out there, and the biggest issue is what do you do with it? Uh, genes are like the blueprint of your house. It tells you what your house should be, what it was intended to be, but it doesn't account for the fact that who built it, what materials it was made of, what kind of abuse it's been subject to, and how it's been repaired. So it's not just how, how your genes are set, but what's happened to them through the course of your life and what you are doing to change their, their expression. Is that a little bit of what epigenetics is? Epigenetics is, a, yes, it, but that's trying to take it to a very scientific level where you're, you first look at DNA and then you look at messenger RNA, which reads the DNA and takes it to the rest of your cell and either builds stuff or repairs things or makes hormones or what have you, but it works both ways. Um, Hormones regulate the genetic expression. Um, what you eat regulates genetic expression. Your stress levels, trauma to your life, uh, ionizing radiation, and of course carcinogens will also exp uh, change genetic expression either favorably or unfavorably. So epigenetics is a study of what's happening after the DNA is, is set and who's reading it and what they're doing with it. It seems that the, the genetic landscape is fast. I mean, I had this biology of the cancer cell in college a long time ago with Dr. Prescott. And 
you know, we were talking about looking at the interrupting the cancer gene, right, the genes of these cancer cells on the one level, and he's saying, hey, don't go, don't eat mushrooms was his thing. You know, shower with a friend so you can catch skin cancer easy. Stay away from mutagens like, you know, cannabinine on the sprouts. That was, the, that was his fear. But fast forward literally 25 years later, and we are now having a, a, an extended version of that conversation. Yes, we are. Now, we know some of the things we've known since, the, you know, the nuclear age, some very nasty things that can damage DNA. Some of the things we thought that could harm it were turning out not to be so harmful. In fact, there are some mushrooms that can actually greatly improve your immunologic health and alter genetic expression. There are extracts from other vegetables that can do that. It can actually bypass some of the most dangerous mutations that have to do with breast cancer. We're just now picking up on that, but those aren't expensive pharmaceuticals, so the information is not driven as, as hard and heavy on that. Um, we're still trying to learn what changes our DNA, what makes the expression of it more favorable, and what makes it less favorable. It seems now that there are many companies that are allowing us access in. Can you just talk about the, the broad brushstrokes of what it looks like to have your, who would test your genes, how is it done, and how is that information currently used by a physician or a coach? Okay, well, physicians are still, I think, despite we're supposed to know it all, we're still way behind the, uh, the curve on that. There are basically two types of tests. There's the whole genome, which is every single uh, chromosome pair in your body. That's, I think, 3.2 billion base pairs, and you can now get that test done for about $1,000. Now, that's just knowing the gene sequence. That says nothing about the, the meaning of it. Most of the tests out there commercially available are things like 23andMe, which is a genotyping. They look at approximately 600,000 uh, base pairs, and you can get some information that most people are working on. A lot of the other tests use that same gene chip, which is a spit sample. Um, to get your whole genome, it's more reliable to do a blood sample, and there are companies that do that, but they charge not just $1,000 to get that, to get the data, but usually uh, five, four, five, six, or even $20,000 to give you information based on that. And a lot of it's almost too much information. Dr. Lee, uh, Kelly and I have both had a lot of genetic testing done, but I realize that I have no idea what a base pair is. Okay. Can you explain that? Uh, DNA um, is basically a, a molecule. It's like a spiral ladder. And there are, there, are, there are two molecules that sit across from each other. And they have four symbols, G, A, T, and C. Or, you know, from the movie Gattaca, you might remember that one. But and I, I want to get into too much detail, but those molecules pair up with each other, and they're meant to pair um, like a nice couple. Now, occasionally, um, you get what's called a snip. One of the pairs moves away, and an interloper comes in. Someone who doesn't belong is a pair, and that changes not only that little tiny sequence of the DNA, but how it could be expressed down the road in terms of, of proteins your body would make or not make. How um, it, it could affect your vitamin absorption. It could affect gluten tolerance. It could affect many things even those one little bitty SNPs, or single nucleotide pairs, or they call polymorphism. So it's two little molecules that usually pair up together. When one gets knocked out and something is substituted for it, that's considered to be a heterozygous or one mutation. When both are, are, are wrong, that's considered to be homozygous for both mutations. So a normal gene has two normal pairs that belong to each other. Heterozygous has one pair missing and one interloper. Homozygous has two people that don't belong there. So if I could just say from my own experience, I have the MTFR mutation. So how does that, how does that relate? To, I mean, explain that in terms of okay. base pairs. Okay, that's MTHFR, MTHFR. And it sounds like an acronym for a swear word if you spell it out. Um, 
In fact, the, the genetic researchers call it that. Um, if you have one, there are two genes that have to do with that, and this, this has to do with an enzyme. MTHFR is an enzyme that takes folic acid, which we all need, and converts it into something that our body can actually use called L-methylfolate, also known as vitamin B9. It, there are two genes. If you have one gene missing, uh, that enzyme is working at 85% capacity. If you've got two missing, it's 65%. If you've got the other one, one missing, it's 60%. It can be down to 30% or as low as 18%. And what that means is your body can't make a compound that's critical for, for focus, for feeding the production of a chemical in your brain called serotonin. Um, it's also critical for, for uh, focus for things like ADD. People who have these mutations in the MTHFR gene um, tend to have more tendency towards anxiety, depression, and ADD. Also, that, that process, that molecule is critical for something called methylation, and those methyl groups that it helps produce protect you against heart disease and also protect you against cancer. So there could be a lot of downstream consequences from just a mutation on two little genes, but it's not a guarantee. I've got a worse mutation than you. I've never had anxiety, I've never had depression, I'm in denial about ADD, but my children have half my mutation and they are more affected by this. So again, their expression is more clinically significant than mine, and there are actually other genes that relate to this that probably protect me. In fact, I know there are, but that's where it starts getting complex. It isn't just one gene, it's how they all interact with each other. Now this is interesting because Darwin's dangerous idea was not evolution, it was evolution by natural selection, and that these mutations are a normal aspect of being a human, normal aspect of, of, of genetic recombination, that this is how we have, my understanding is how we've come to be human beings, through these small little adaptations over time. Is that, Co is that right? Correct. And you know, some of these mutations we think are unfavorable to us here in this area may be more favorable for other situations where we had different food sources, where, where we had only plant or animal sources. Uh, we we're out in the sun more. Maybe we didn't need as much vitamin D. Um, I mean, that's one example that, depending on your genes, your requirement for vitamin D can change tenfold. You might need only 2,000 IU a day in sunlight and diet. I need 15,000, I found out. Some people need as much as 20,000 to get adequate levels. So some of these mutations were adaptive. Obviously, if they're totally wrong, we wouldn't survive and breed. So they have their purposes. The question is, are they serving our purpose now? I think it really brings up this interesting point because you know, Juliet and I, our first experience with genetics as it related to trying to improve our health was with your company. Right. And it was the first time we, you had, we had seen you had taken a sub, really important subjective exam. You asked us a lot of questions, like 300 questions, yeah. about our lifestyle, our histories, injuries, head trauma. I mean, it was deep, right? Yeah. Then you went and looked at our blood panel and then layered on this third piece, which is the first time that for Juliet and I, we picked up on our understanding holes in our experience or deficits in our nutrition or, or aspects of ourselves that we couldn't reconcile, and it was easy then to plug and play. Is that what we should be doing? That's what we should be doing, but that, that's a process that really takes some thought. Um, you said it yourself. A lot of it was in those questions you answered. It's, you know, I keep saying it's not your genes, it's what you do with it, and what have they done to you? How do they express themselves? What symptoms do you have? How do you react to certain foods, to stress? What was interesting is we often think that everyone should be on a low-carb, higher-protein-fat diet. We found in Juliet's case you needed more carbs. 
and, and that probably made a difference in energy. Um, like me, you had different mutations in this MTHFR methylation, and correcting for that, giving your body the, the form of folate that it couldn't make, I think helped with focus quite a bit. But you can get that also from your history. If you had issues with focus or mood, well, that's one of the causes, and that's one that's correctable. If you know the DNA, you can maybe be more refined in the correction. But it's that combination of the history. It's, it's how those genes have expressed in, in your life and how you deal with life and how it deals with you that really gives power to that DNA information. If you don't have that information, you don't know if that mutation is, is, is being expressed, you don't know if it's actionable, you don't know if trying to correct it is gonna make any difference. Let me ask you this. I mean, just a personal anecdote. For many years, this has been a long-running joke for Gillette and I, I have this thing I call the one-man attack on the sun. And I don't believe in sunscreen. I think you should just get full sun and then get out of the sun. That's my MO, right? Just if you've, you've cut off. Right. But I feel best when I am lobster red and nuked with sun, sun. And it turns out I had developed this strategy a long time ago and... I have critically low levels of vitamin D all the time. Yeah, so you were craving what your body needed, what your mutations are telling you. I mean, I've got a classic tan. I don't wear sun, a biker's tan. I don't wear sunscreen ever. I'm out in the sun four to 10 hours a week, yet my vitamin D level was barely by the bottom of normal. So I had to bump it way up to 15,000 IU a day, which I never thought I'd have to do. Um, because of that, I feel better. I haven't been sick since I did that. Um, I'm healing a little faster for the few times I do crash. So, uh, question for you. We went through another uh, genetic test through a company called Athletogen. And one of the things we learned there is that, you know, obviously the human genome was, uh, you know, mapped out in the early 2000s. But when we went through the Athletogen panel, we realized there are a gazillion studies on all of these genes, and some have you know, more weight than others. Can you just give us sort of a, the landscape of where we are in terms of studies? I mean, obviously we know about this MTHFR gene. There's probably been many studies on that. Right. But, you know, where are we in the universe and how much do we actually know? It depends on who you listen to and who you read. Um, <laughs> there are different powers of these studies. And they're actually mostly done, what they do is they take different people with different diseases and they look at their DNA and they look at commonalities. How many people have this condition have those gene mutations. That's where we started. We started with sick people. And now they're just starting to look into athletic people. Well, what about nutrients? Well, let's look at people's vitamin D levels and see what gene mutations seem to affect that. It's, those are a little stronger because you can measure those objectively more. Now they're getting to the, the sprinter gene, which everyone's really popular about. And that was found, basically they looked at, at a mutation that was common in your best sprinters, but those were mainly um, from Poland, I think, and, and, and other Slavic countries. We don't know if it applies across the, the world. There are other athletic genes that, that affect only Han Chinese males. So it depends on where the study group is. And, and what I've had to do is when I look, at, I look up those genes and I have to go to the papers and say, well, where was the study done? How many people was it done on? And these are usually, in the case of athletic genes, on, on not that many people. You know, we're talking maybe, maybe 20, 30 at most, a couple hundred, rarely a thousand. I think this is... It's interesting because it seems like we've opened up this this Pandora's box, for lack of a better word, about about understanding ourselves. And I think that has some interesting implications. Who owns this material? How how can this information can it be used against me? Should I test that? And more importantly, ultimately, what it really comes down to is how does this improve my life? 
right? Because already we're making these horrible errors. We don't sleep enough. We're stressed out. <laughs> and now I've added more complexity to a system. And, and should we care if I'm sleeping and sleep deprived and messed up and stressed and eat, you know, McDonald's does understanding my genetic profile matter or should it matter in the long haul? And how do we come to think about that? Good question. Well, the stress and the lack of sleep and the crappy food have a far greater influence on your health than your genes at this point. And they can change the expression with, with the exception of extremely rare severe mutations that you'd know from birth. Um, on, on the thing about who owns this and what can they do about it, Thankfully, we have what's now called the Genetic Information Neutrality Act, which says that you cannot be discriminated on the basis of employment, health insurance, life insurance, or disability, or long-term care insurance on the basis of your DNA data. And one reason is, I guess, to protect the genetic industry. But the other is, having those mutations doesn't guarantee they're going to be expressed. And so it's, it's guilt, you know, if, if you're a member of a club where there's some bad people, that doesn't mean you're going to be a bad one, too. So they realize that. But you know, who owns this? Well, any company that um, you pay to do a DNA test, I'm pretty sure that they're gathering that data. You know, 23andMe has, has um, been given a lot of money from pharma companies to have that information. It's supposed to not have your name to it, and probably doesn't. Um, you know, it, you're, no one can screw you, but that doesn't mean people won't profit from it. You know, it would be great if, if somehow you could profit from it as well, but that's down the road. Maybe we get some sort of crowdsourcing like, like, like Uber or something for your genes, and then you can, <laughs> you know, you can sell that little bit to somebody else. So, um, but again, it's a whole lot of information. You're talking, like I said, 3.2 billion pairs of molecules. And what do they mean, and are they going to be changed or expressed? How do you, how do you, work around that. You know, the, the MTHFR is an example. You take a vitamin your body can't make and you solve the problem that the mutation could have caused. There are many, many more. So in my case, I would say that, you know, especially because I have the MTHFR gene or gene mutation, mm -hmm. that having, knowing my genetics has been very useful to me. Mm -hmm. But what about regular people? Is it useful? That is one this, is, or is it something in the future that will be useful? There are some that are useful now. Um, that's one of the ones that's most actionable because I've, I've been, again, doing genomic testing on people mostly out of curiosity, not because I felt it was that actionable early on, but I've been doing it for nine years and there's more and more information. The MTHFR just came out about two or three years ago. And that one, if it, for example, if you've got a kid that, that you think has to go on Ritalin because there's focus issues or mood issues, if they have that mutation, you put them on the correct dose of L-methylfolate, which their body can't make, oftentimes they don't need the drugs. I've had many kids where it's, it's been an epiphany. And, and in those situations, yes, and there's no harm and very little cost to that. Vitamin D is another gene that, uh, that, like I said, you could need 10 times as much as the person next to you. And if your D levels are good, it's going to upregulate your hormones. It's going to help with your skin and hair. It's going to help reduce all-cause mortality, heart disease. And for people who have MS, it's critical. Get your levels up and the symptoms go down. So there are actionable genes. A lot of them are more on the nutritional side than sort of the athletic performance side. Um, you know, there are many other things you can do. It's good to have that information, but again, what do you do with it? We just want to take a second and have a pause in this amazing conversation and just give, us a, a, give you an update about where we are. Because, you know, it's one thing to have this theoretical conversation, but we just want to give you an, a sort of a, a glimpse of how this is continuing to work. So we, we have this experience 
you know, what we've seen on your blood panel in the past, and this is not the first time we've, we've done this with wellness effects, we've, we've tried this other thing, but we were always missing this genetic component. And what we saw was that you had always, Juliet, had low B vitamins and your hematocrit was down and you had sort of low iron levels, right? And for me, that was kind of sweet because I, when we trained together, I was, it was much easier for me to whip your butt. So easy for you. I'm going to put in quotation marks. With your hematocrit. <laughs> Comma. Um, what happened, Jay? What what happened with, after after you got this information? Yeah, so I know we've talked a bit about it already, but you know the most significant thing I learned from Dr. Lee was that I had the MTHFR gene mutation, which doesn't allow me to um, absorb and process folate in the normal ways um, through wait, food wait, okay. and otherwise. So we've talked about that a little bit, but the the action was simple, right? It was really simple, but it's significant because if I had gone to my regular physician, they would have told me to take B12 pills and make sure I eat a bunch of red meat and get B12 from my diet, not appreciating that I can't really... Based on my genetics, I can't really absorb B12 that way. Unless you did a couple other things. Right. So I went on and did B12 injections. I also supplemented that with B12 pills and took a supplement called L-methylfolate. And this other this other substance, which is found in like broccoli. Yeah, broccoli right, called, called dim, dim. Right. Very simple. And these are over the counter. And what happened? Blood panel changed. Right. You came out of the pits, went back up to the high normal, and you felt better. Yeah, I mean, the reason that this is so significant for me is these are metrics that really impact how you feel. And once I got my B12 and iron levels up, I felt way better. I could train harder, recover better, sleep better. I mean, you name it in terms of a feeling good metric, it went it went way up. Which is great for me as your husband, bad for me as your training partner. <laughs> All right, back to the story. How many physicians do you know you are associated with an organization, yeah. well, well-established universities. You have been tinkering with this for nine years. You sort of know what the landscape looks like. My experience is that the average person maybe gets their genes tested because it allows them to find their, their heritage, right? They know right. where they get DNA, right? where did I come from, dot com. Right. And then I see this world of high performance where the people that are interested tend to be Ferraris in, right. in nature or in self-conceptualization. More self-conceptualization. That's right. <laughs> and, and trying to get a little bit more percentage. And that's the, where I have run into this conversation because I think for the average person, they're like, you know, do I need to know this information? You know, and, and we're not talking about do you know the, have the BRCA breast cancer gene or not. We're just saying, hey, are there, are there actionable behaviors? Are there tweaks around nutrition or sleep or things you, have to, you should know about trying to go faster as, or better or be more efficient? Is that the only place that, that we're seeing this genes right now or are more physicians starting to think about this or is it just too complicated yet? It's, well, it shouldn't be complicated. The problem is there's no... There's no simple, there's no genetics for dummies uh, for physicians, at least if I had the time, I'd write that. Um, and a lot of physicians, unfortunately, if you, most people know, they get five minutes with their doctor, unless you have a boutique doctor, and most of them aren't even getting into this, unless, as they say in Ghostbusters, if there's a big ch paycheck in it, they'll believe it. And there are um, organizations out there that charge uh, five to $25,000 to, to give you all that information. It's a huge data dump, but I'm not sure how much it's actionable. I've got some patients who are spending that money, and so far I'm not impressed with the answers that they're getting back. Um, so it's, it's still in its infancy. I mean, I'm in the process of trying to build a company that will bring that to an eighth grade person's level that's actionable. 
so many of the genetic variations are actionable for everyone, it, and it's not thousands of them, it, and most it's maybe 200 that I know of right now, and really it boils down to 10, where anyone, if they've got mutations, they correct for they have to mostly uh, nutrigenomics, um, the MTHFR gene, vitamin D, um, the, the night owl gene that really alters sleep timing, you have to compensate for that. Um, there's the warrior versus warrior gene, and some things you can do about that. <laughs> And, and by the way, warrior isn't always the best thing. Yeah, and by the way, Juliet's pointing at me because I am the warrier in the family. We were which shocked. Is totally that was true. the most shocking and piece Juliet of information we got. Is, is the warrior? Is the, yeah, is, is I was convinced I was the warrior and that he was the warrior, and it's the opposite. Interesting. Fascinating. Well, yeah, that because yeah, the stereotype is totally different. The warrior <laughs> is the person who's a good Marine Force recon who lives on adrenaline, can bust down the door when things get scary. They rise to the occasion. And my understanding is it's also the person who has high variety drive for, for novel stimuli. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. but there's another seeker. gene for that, and we call that the novelty-seeking gene. If it's too high, then they have what's called a conduct disorder. They don't feel alive unless they're dating drug lords' wives and gambling with their parents' money and driving cars with, with you know, getting the police to oh, chase them. Oh, that's Juliet for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, what's interesting... It was my experience with seeing coaches using this, for example, Worry Warrior or Novelty Seeking, is that it may change how a coach can write a program. For example, let me give you an example between Juliet and I. If you are like, Kelly, I need you to do these eight by 30 minute pieces four times a week, and you're going to eat the same meals seven times a week, I'm like, all right, that's all I got to do to get better. I got it. Juliet, day one. I would, I would go into rebelled. the fetal position and feel sad and I emo. I am highly coachable. Juliet was like, this, I'm out. Yeah. Like, this yeah. is, she's done. So you, that would be, for a trainer who can interpret that information, it would be useful. Um, there's also a gene, that, a mutation I call the clumsy nerd gene. Um, and that, that's fairly actual. A lot of people have, a, have more trouble with, with things that involve balance and coordination. And they're slower and they tend to be more introverted. Um, and that tends to be fairly predictive. Um, their genes have to do with sociability. Some have to do with stress response. Some have just being an outright asshole. Do you, do you think that as we become to understand... What's that gene called? The asshole gene? I call it the gene? asshole gene, yes. Okay. It's like the A-S-S-H-L gene. Yeah, 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 right? that you just put in some other letters in it. Here's the, here's the question. Does this all begin to beg the, con the question that isn't this just apologetics? It can be. I mean, I mean say, oh, I can blame my genes for this or something? Yeah, I, I don't have to work very hard or, you know, that it somehow gives me an excuse. You know, you know that, you know, I have a Scottish hip is the classic, classic anthropometry. You know, my hip is a deeper hip socket because I have this genetic, so I can't squat. Well, work around it. You know, if I can't, um, I can't sprint, but I can climb on a bike really well. But what, what, I, what I hear yeah. you saying is that this is not... The, the, sh the misinterpretation of E.O. Wilson, of genetic determinism. This is saying, hey, we, are, we still have manifest self-destiny. Yes. But underneath that, there are guiding principles that may make it more difficult or less difficult or behaviors that I have to, can pay attention to if I'm aware of it. And maybe it's just this is just an entree into consciousness to know myself better. Is that, is that, because that's what yeah. I've been experienced with you. Providing the information, you can, you can work upon it and then you know, understand where it adds up to where you feel and how you work and then what you can do to change that. Yeah, no one's locked into it. Again, gene expression is a total different thing and, and can be, you can have all those genes and, and they won't be um, affecting you. Um, my MTHFRs are not affecting me. My vitamin D is. 
Uh, my kids have less, it affects them more. So you, and you can change gene expression, we know that. Um, we're just trying to figure out better ways to do that for those who need it. So you mentioned you're starting a new company. We worked right. with you when you were at your other company, right. GeneSolve, which we found uh, transformative for mm -hmm. both of us. But tell us what your vision is. What are you up to? What are you, what are you okay. hoping this um, becomes? The new company, the, the, the working title, and we're just starting up, is called Altitude. And the A and the I are capital because um, what, I, what I've learned from 25 years of medical practice and, and teaching and suffering through it and 10 years of trying to interpret genomics at the point of primary care at patients in, at the bedside with me in regular practice is it's, it's, it's more a matter of how those genes get expressed. What has happened in your life that's either going to turn them on or turn them off or is living proof that you've got these mutations? And so... I developed and, and in refining an algorithm that takes a very long questionnaire, which you guys did, it's going to be better, and from that tells you historically what's probably awry with it. Your physician or any lab test may not be able to pick up. And then if you combine that with automatically the genomics that line up with that, it'll tell you, well, here's where you need to focus your energies on in terms of a diet change, a sleep change, an exercise change. Um, here's where you may be mindful of something that, that you might pass on to your kids and, and work with them on that. And the idea is to do that hopefully without the need of a physician, but anyone else who's got the, the, the passion to provide that information to their clients or, or, or patients or friends. So what I want to do is take everything I've learned, make it automatic, make it understandable at, 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 at no higher than eighth grade education, and then bring that to as many people as possible. It seems Stay to me tuned. like there's almost a problem of scale because one of the most impressive things you did for us was take that long personal history and combine it with the blood work and the genetics and make all these connections. But what that takes is time, and that's what physicians currently don't have. Right. Um, so and so it is the goal to try to boil it down so a regular physician could uh, share this type of information with someone in a short amount of time, or is inevitably it going to require physicians to spend more time and be able to make those connections? My goal is to make sure they don't need much more time, but I want to get it so, so trainers as brilliant as you and those who aren't as brilliant as you can do the same thing. You're not making a diagnosis. You're simply saying these are probabilities of things that, have, that are going on with you physiologically. These are things that may be going genetically. Here are the linkages. And according to all we know, here's where you may put your efforts in to change things. But, I mean, isn't that fundamental behavior that we're trying to do as a parent anyway? I don't make a diagnosis. My, my kid acted crappy today. I'm diagnosing they need more sleep tomorrow. The, the, we're just trying to become a little bit more granular about the behavior changes. Instead of saying everyone needs to sleep 10 hours, you can say that, hey, you are more susceptible. Here's the example. We see that a lot of big sports teams will adopt very interesting GPS technology initially, and they, they capture a lot of information about their athletes. And then once they see the meta trends, the technology becomes less useful because they already know what to look for and they can already make predictive behavior choices, right? That they, you know, the, this, these guys, our biggest guys run six to 10 miles or six to eight miles in a, in a match. So I need to be able to conditioned. And there might be an outlier that here or there, or we've seen these trends enough. And then we get to the place where I don't even have to measure because I know what to expect in a, in a given population. Is that ultimately where genetics is gonna be the most useful for us? I think so, but again, um, we have to remember that, that the genes are fixed, but the expression is, is dynamic. 
and um, exposure to different things or traumas or stressors can change that expression and you need to be mindful of it. You, it at least you, you know what the blueprint is and you can see how the house is maybe breaking down and then you know where you have to focus to repair it. That, that's probably the biggest utility of it. That information should be made simple and easy to anyone who can begin to understand it. And I explain it to a lot of my patients, not, very few are PhDs, and they get it. And so I, I want that more people to be able to give that to people and, and make um, use of it, make it actionable. You know, we had our daughters tested, and I have no idea about the weight of the, some of the tests, but our daughter, Georgia, showed uh, to have the most... Those were well-weighted tests. Well-weighted. She was no. the best athlete of all of us, just the most well-rounded athlete of all of us. But what she lacked, and actually what we see in her, is she lacks motivation. And... That actually helped us because she's the kind of kid that needs to be pushed to go be physically active. And I, before I got this test, I actually felt bad, like I was being mean and I was pushing my kid to move her body when her natural desire is to like lay on the couch and bake cookies. And after I got this genetic test, I realized that this is a genetic thing for her. She needs to be pushed. And once she's out on the field, she loves it and is totally into it. So this was an interesting learning for me. I'd love to see her raw data. And, and you know, th that's probably a motivational gene or a gene that has to do with an initiative, right. initiating right. yeah. activity. Um, you know, desire you to move. Yeah, desire, desire to, move. to move. Once she's moving, she's in. But that, it's that nexus of getting but from not moving contrasting to moving. Contrasting, <laughs> when, you, when you put her into the population that they had looked at, the thousands of athletes, she was like 13th percentile for desire to train, desire to move. And her dad is like 98th percentile in terms of like, you know, you blow like, I'm like, let's go, let's do it. You know, so it's, it is interesting to just even, and what we have found, whether this is true or not, is that even now that Georgia is aware of that right. propensity to, you know, know that, hey, I just doesn't have a lot of initial drive. But once she knows that now, she, she's on it. Well, she just realized she needs a push start. Yeah, that's right, and that's and we're that's that, the, that's that the end of our behavior for yeah. her. She just, she's just like, you know, she'd be like, "Dad, come out with me," and then like, now I'm her training partner, and, and then it's on. Well, now she knows the reason why. She knows it's not because she's lazy and or or that she's got um, you know she's been smoking dope or something. It's it's <laughs> well it's, a lot of dope. I mean, here in California, age eleven. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know what's interesting for us in the expression because you know it was so transformative for us to see these holes in, or, or opportunities. They're not holes, there's opportunities yeah. to turn little wrenches and feel a little better. Um, you know, even with Caroline, so for example, I felt like with my recovery, and, and there's a couple things I want to talk about. One is that I saw that my recovery genetic profile was low. I didn't, I didn't have excellent recoverability. And that uh, what I know from this, this gene pool that I looked at is that I can't handle the training volumes that my other friends can. I have friends who are literally like wolverines. And that I actually have to sleep a little bit more. I have to pay attention to the details a little bit more in order to handle the kinds of volumes that my friends can handle. I really have to pay attention to the details. Yeah, but the idea is you can get as much outcome with less volume. There are people who don't know that, and then they're breaking themselves down. They're, 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 their whole um, neuroendocrine system, their adrenals crash. That's right. And then their hormones go down, and then they get sick, and then and they start getting arthritis and all that stuff. But they keep pushing it. And in, that, in the comparing my, that, that little pool of genes in my, uh, in my profile, I was like 18th percentile in terms of just potential. But my daughter Caroline was like 13th percentile. And that kid has to sleep 10 hours a night and potentially take a nap on the weekend to be a normal human being. She's and when the she kid does who, that. She's the only kid we know who asks to go to bed early. 
How old is she? Eight. So she it's sleeps. Eight. She goes to bed at eight and gets up about six thirty, and and I mean she is like night out done. Like there's no silliness. There's no and that kid. She sleeps and sleeps and sleeps and sleeps. And we, I mean, we can say universally every child needs to sleep. But it's, it's very interesting to see how Caroline responds when she's a little bit sleep deprived. She's a different human being. And other kids, like Georgia, she misses, she gets one bad night of sleep and she's the same kid the next day. Of course, physically she doesn't perform, but there's just no change. And how much of that is this, is this a genetic piece? It's just this very, and it's not that it's, it's something we worry about, but knowing that our daughter needs to sleep, I think is very interesting because we've prioritized these behaviors around her that makes my kids stoked to be around all the time. Well, there are, there are two variations we know about. One we call the, uh, it's called the night owl gene, which has to do with how late you get to sleep. Um, and the other is called the clock gene, which is the actual requirements in, in terms of hours. And it varies. Some people can get away with five, some need nine. Um, you know, and it's what you do with those times you have. And then there's the other, aside from the genetics, what's the quality of their sleep? You know, some people need 10 hours because it's really crappy. They don't get a lot of deep sleep, and, and we don't have those studies. But that's one thing where a simple wearable, that's one application of all the data people are gathering with all these wearables that would probably have the most meaning is, are you getting decent sleep? Is it deep enough? And then do you have the clock gene where you have to sleep a lot or, or, or a little? We have a, f a friend who turned us on to this wearable that Kelly and I, or I wear now, but he, he liked it so much because he said he would be laying in bed for 10 hours, but the wearable showed that, you know, he's got a little kid, a two-year-old kid, he was waking up 17 times in the night. Um, so, you know, the kid no was one, waking him up? Or yeah, the kid was waking up and he was probably, you know, waking up from having woken up so many times. And so he found that to be really useful data, though, because he's like, what? I'm laying here in bed for the required amount of time, which is eight and a half hours. Why do I feel terrible? A lot of these have to do with movement. And um, one thing you have to remember, if, if you, like me, have a 100-pound German Shepherd or a 10-pound cat that jump on the bed many times a night, that may throw it off as well. <laughs> so, so consider we that. We have a 20-pound cat. Okay, so... <laughs> You know, what's been really interesting is that I haven't run, met many physicians who are trying to be at, but trying to affect where the rubber hits the road with this information. Where I have run into this is high-level coaches trying to interpret genetic profiles around training volume and, and response to training. Because I know I've just saw a recent study that Dr. Andy Galpin put up that did show that when people were trained in their genetic cohort, they responded better than people who were not in their genetic cohort, like around strength or, or some endurance kind of training. Not that people weren't you know, just having normal training response, but people really had a good reaction. So I, I've seen that people are trying to, to interpret it that way. Are there three or four things that you think someone should be asking of or could be aware of that there might be a genetic component that, you know, with maybe not taking a test or if I take a test, I should look at these things? I mean, asking a trainer or asking their physician? physician. They should ask a physician, but I don't know if they're going to get the answer. And that frustrates me a bit because um, I like this. I, I, didn't think I'd be, I never thought I'd be interested in genetics, you know, because it's so, out, it's so at the core and there's so many things that happen between your DNA and you. But now I'm seeing the closer linkages from the things that do matter. For people, for non-elite athletes, they should, they should try and get an answer. Most doctors won't order tests, but, you know, how does my genes affect my, my vitamin D levels? Do I have this MTHFR mutation? Will, will changing that affect my, my life or, or, or health risk? Um, there are others, warrior versus warrior, um, the, the sleep and clock gene. Um, 
oh, gluten. I have, there are 14 genes um, that have to do gluten tolerance. This is not celiac disease or, 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 or fashion trend. I have nine mutations. I'm not acutely aware of illness, but when I went off it, I lost some more weight and I had more energy. I've had other people where their dermatitis went away. They, they were not aware of any gluten issues, but when, when you show them the gene and said, try this because your gut, your skin, your arthritis might do better, they did. And it does line up in that situation. So um, that would be, help to convince someone um, if they do need to make a diet change so they're not aware, it would, it would, it would help them. But, but ultimately what I hear you saying is that this is all well and good, but the most important thing that I should remember as a user is, does my life get better? That if I have this information and I act on it, and ultimately the best arbiter of is this good is, did I, my lean body mass go up? Does my concentration go up? Really what we're going to call subjective qualitative experience. That's what matters most. You know, you can have all the numbers line up perfectly, but if you feel like crap, then it's not doing any good. It's how do you sleep? How do you feel? What's your mood? What's your energy? What's your focus? What's your libido? And then on the dark side, what's your pain and what's your stress? And, and you find that when, when good things go down, bad things go up, and you know, genes can affect the ability of the, of the rate of change possibly, but it's one more way of saying, you know, here's this information, if we can use it to make you change your life, and that's what I found when I give people genetic information. One, it does, they don't panic, think, oh my God, I'm gonna die. They say, oh, well, that's why I've had trouble with this. Oh, maybe I should change my diet on that one. And when they do, it often works really well. But you're right, it's the subjective things. So what about heritability? Um, <laughs> You know, I know we'll get a lot of questions after we post this from people who say, okay, well, I don't have access to genetic testing. Can I, you know, look at what I know about myself and my parents and try to figure some of this out? Yeah. Um, and, in, you know, it's interesting because when I look at the, the genetic testing results, there's another part of predictive value, which is a family history which, where the genetics aren't known. And that probably is, is, in many ways, can be as strong or stronger than your, your genes because that's how it's being expressed down the line. You know, so, um, you know, you have to take a look at yourself or your children or your parents and, and see, well, maybe, maybe dad was the milkman, you know, <laughs> because, I'm yeah, not because like it my... seems like you could do that with a disease, you know, if yeah. you have a history, you know, everybody right. seems to know if they have a history of certain diseases, but some of these more nuanced things like, you know, vitamin D or, you yeah. know, the night owl gene might be a more obvious one. That's obvious. Probably the most, the most obvious one in terms of behavior, observability in most people is that the, the methylation one, the MTHFR, people who are mutated where it's significant clinically, more anxiety, more depression, more ADD. Um, families may have a higher risk of heart disease. People with these mutations tend to be, some of them tend to be more hypermobile. They can touch their thumb to their wrist. If they can do that, if they get dizzy, they jump up quickly, they probably have that mutation. If they have Raynaud's disease, their hands get, get that, like a migraine in your hands, they probably have that mutation. And even if they're not depressed or anxious, correcting that nutritionally, which is and not pharmacologically, can make a difference. Doesn't cost a lot, can't hurt. Could you just, could someone just go and get a 23andMe panel or results and take that into their physician and say, uh, no, can you tell no. me anything about this? I wish, well, <laughs> I can, but I spent a, a year developing an algorithm that automatically parses through all 600,000 base pairs in that and pulls out the data that I want. That, that'll be part of the commercial program I'm gonna, 
hopefully get out to the world. There are other companies that do that. There's one called um, Genetic Genie that talks about the methylation. It'll tell you those MTHFR mutations, but it doesn't give you a lot of information about what to do with it. And then you've got to go to two or three other different places to get that information, and then different supplement companies that will tell you how much of L-methylfolate or B12 to take because of those mutations. But it's, they don't take into account how you feel. Um, there's Promethease, and they give even less information that could be scary. And again, people trying to biohack themselves go to that website, but they're making all kinds of predictions when they don't line it up with how they feel and what their symptoms and how it's expressed. So um, your, your, most physicians won't be able to do much more with it. 23andMe tells you about your ancestry and where you're going to have wet earwax or, or blonde hair or something like that. Um, but they've got all that data. The, the, the trick is, to, and you have it, access to it is what you do with it. Do you think Mendelssohn was onto something? I mean, isn't he the, the godfather of genetics? I mean, I mean, should we just all, is this important? I see the implications on, you know, do I absorb a certain drug or not? Right. A certain, right? Yeah. But, and we're not testing people when we should. A lot of people out there on statins where, A, they can't tolerate it. The, the lucky ones, their muscles fall apart and they know it. There are other ones where they tolerate it, but it's not going to lower their heart disease risk, even if it lowers their cholesterol. So there's a really interesting actual piece around something that's very widespread. But the rest of us, what if I just got a lot of sun, slept, ate a wide variety of foods, exercised enough? Do I need to know this? I mean, my grandparents didn't know this. I know a lot of Olympic medalists who didn't know this. Is, are we just... Is this just complication on already a system that's too complicated? There's some, unfortunately, there's a lot of truth to that. Again, those things you described, getting the sleep, getting the sun, getting the right diet is more important than, than right now than anything you'll know with your DNA. If you made it this far in life without a, you know, an obvious genetic defect, then those lifestyle things are most important. And I actually use that DNA information to say, look, your vitamin D sucks you, you need to get out in the sun more, we'll, you know, see your dermatologist if something gets weird as far as skin cancer, um, but, and get some better sleep. You've got the night algae, and I use that to argue something that, I, that, that they otherwise wouldn't listen to me. So as, as, as someone who's giving health advice, it's another tool I can use to twist their arm, when, especially these people that are very data-driven. So, but, you know, there are other people where little nuanced information like that, the people with kids who have these mood issues, if you know, if they just knew that, that a simple supplement would work in many cases as well as Ritalin, um, it's, a, it's a boon to them, or at least they need less Ritalin. I mean, yeah, that's are... a huge deal. I mean, we've yeah. done all this research around ADHD with our standing desk initiative, and, you know, yeah. it's up, the ADHD diagnoses are up you know, a huge amount. And I know a lot of those parents don't want to medicate their kids and feel like they have no other choice in order to keep them in school. Right. Well, I mean, there are other problems that are food chain that are, that are, that are um, they don't cause that, but they can exacerbate it. And, and you know, how many kids are looking at a screen that changes color and flashes before their eyes a thousand times a minute? <laughs> that would be all the kids, right? Yeah. You know, and then it's interesting because I say, on the one hand, is this all misplaced precision? And on the other hand, the fact that, you know, when, Ju when Juliet had Caroline, she had seven blood transfusions Ooh. and burned out her bone marrow and then didn't you know, process vitamin B very well because she has this damaged folate thing. Yeah. And leaning on that a little bit, you know, saw, we saw better upregulation. Like Juliet changed. When she started you know, upping her B, B vitamins and folate, her life changed. Yeah, this is the challenge for me because I see that this is so early and there's so few physicians who can interpret it and give useful information um, and it's inaccessible to most people. But for me, it was so useful. 
So, you know, I don't know, you know, maybe it's just five or 10 years down the line. I mean, do you think it will be more useful for more people in the future? I want to make it five or 10 months down the line. Yeah. And I mean, there's a core of things that are useful to everyone. And then as your, as your tuning refinement goes out further, there, there, you can go further into genetic variations that may or may not make a difference for you. And, and we'll gather that information and hopefully be right about it. Um, but yeah, there's a core of, of, of genetic information that right now, at the core of most people out there in society that they could use the people who know how to interpret it if we're made more readily available. It seems like those 10 things you'd mentioned yes. would be great for everybody to know. Yeah. Just those 10 things. You don't need yeah. to know the 60,000 other things. Right. Yeah. We, we, we are too much information-based. Everyone wants more and more info. Why not do the best with what you've got before you start gathering a whole bunch of stuff you can't use yet? <laughs> and it seems that ultimately... The actual pieces come down to the fundamentals of being human. Stress, re stress reduction, exercise, nutrition, sleep, you, mean, you know, having sex. I mean, just the things that we know make for healthy relationships, healthy humans in this society. Ultimately, this is about being consciousness to change behaviors that fall into one of those buckets. Exactly. And, you know, we're always wanting a simple fix. Oh, I'll, I'll just tweak my DNA. If I know that I can change a different... No. Get back to basics. And, and, and that, again, there's a limited amount of core DNA information that is valuable to most everyone. It's not a huge amount. And there's more out there, but you need... The more you go out into that wilderness, the more of an educated guide you need to, to avoid the pitfalls and get you to the, the right places. Well, I, for one, um, this is... We could talk about this all day, but... This has been very useful for me because when something happens around the house where I don't take out the trash or I forgot something, I literally am like, well... He just relies on his genetics. It's all, it's all my fault of genetics, babe. <laughs> and, and Juliet's like, you're right, it's the genes. It's, it's got to be the genes. <laughs> well, you get more forgiveness that way, at least. <laughs> I call this gene tolerance. That's what I have. That's higher, a great term for it. Well, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. Thank you for listening to The Ready State. If you like what you're hearing, check out all of our episodes here or at mobilitywad.com. The Ready State is the podcast of mobilitywad.com, where we've assembled the world's most comprehensive database of guided movement mechanics and mobility videos, all with the goal to help improve performance and eliminate pain. Each motivated by the simple idea that all human beings should be able to perform basic maintenance on themselves. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under MobilityWad. That's W-O-D as in workout of the day. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it. You better stop it. You got it. You got it. Kelly Starrett is a New York Times bestselling author of Becoming a Supple Leopard and Ready to Run. He's a coach, a physical therapist, an athlete, and an innovator who works with elite athletes as well as everyday people who just want to be healthier and happier in their lives. Juliette Starrett is the co-founder and CEO of both San Francisco CrossFit and MobilityWad, co-founder of StandUpKids.org, a writer, an entrepreneur, and a world champion athlete. Our theme music was provided by Rogue Wave. You got it! You got it! You got it!